We're beginning our series really on the essentials of the Christian faith. Before we dive in, a brief test to see if you're ready for the message. I say theology, you say? See, it's very humbling. It's very humbling for us preacher pastors to know that, you know, what I say one week, you're all going to forget in about seven days' time. <laughs> That's where you have to trust the Spirit. Maybe he didn't want you to remember that. You remember last week, I say theology. Usually it's boring and theology. Oh, theology. But what we're after this series is, I'm hoping to change that in you a bit because it's the study of God and he's everything but boring. So our little game, and I know, you know, maybe it doesn't feel sincere now, but maybe one day it will. So I say theology, you say hooray. It's just sort of, well, not yet, George. Okay, here we go. I say theology, you say? Hooray! Nice. Now, we'll see as the series goes whether this becomes spontaneous. So help us God. Amen? Amen. Or, or hooray. All right, are you ready for a little theology 101 this morning? I hope so, because we're going to take a big sweeping picture at some theology this morning. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for, right? Yeah. You may recall from last week's introduction to the series that essentially we're studying God when we study theology, the study of God, or when we study the essentials of the faith. And that's because God's the ultimate essential. And also because God is the ultimate basis of our unity, despite and even because of our diversity. God makes it happen. And so when we study God, we're also strengthening and discovering how we can be more unified in our diversity. Something that Jesus prayed for us specifically, you and me here today. He prayed that we would today be able to maintain our unity in diversity. He prayed that the night before he died, that we would maintain our unity in diversity so that the world would know that God loves them and us. Now, when studying the essentials, we need a place to begin. And after debating where to begin, I decided, I know, I will begin in the beginning. (laughs) Hooray. Quite profound, don't you think? Okay, what I mean is Genesis 1, verse 1. I figure if the Bible starts with Genesis 1, verse 1, maybe that's a good clue that uh, I should too. And so, in Genesis 1, 1, we already come to several essentials in even those few words. But the essential I'll highlight this morning as a starting point is this. The text says, in the beginning, God. Now, there's several essential, uh, essentials there, even in those few words. But the one I want to highlight for a starting point, I hinted at it last week, is this one. There is a God. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A highlight essential there, at least, is not only is there a God, but he is a God that desires to reveal himself to us by doing something 
What did he do? Created all of it because he wants to reveal himself to us and have a relationship with us and his creation. He wants us to know him. So he created it all. There is a God and he wants us to know him and relate to him. That's essential to our faith and should be common ground for all Christians everywhere, in my opinion. And it's a a starting point, at least. A side note here, I could spend some time showing how reasonable it is to claim that there is a God and to claim that he desires to reveal himself to us. That's the arena, the field of something called apologetics. Apologetics uses that tool of human reason to support what we ultimately know by faith. And the supporting relationship between faith and reason is a powerful tool. But I'm not going to camp much in apologetics in this series. There are marvelous resources that do. If you're interested, ask me. I can name a few for you. But I'm not going to go apologetic too much in this series. Instead, I'm going to take that lead from Genesis 1-1 and begin as God did by simply boldly proclaiming unapologetically in both senses of the word, but boldly proclaiming without reasonable proof just out there with it that there is a God and he desires to reveal himself to us by creating everything. And we'll trust in this series, as the Bible does with the rest of Scripture and experience, that what follows next after those statements, for the Bible, what follows next in Genesis through Revelation, indeed proves the truth of those two initial proclamations. There is a God, and he desires to reveal himself to us. In other words, how many of you have heard the phrase, there is, the proof is in the pudding? All right, that's good. Some of you have heard it. I brought pudding with me today. <laughs> and I want to have some fun with some pudding. Who's like, who's like, pudding is their favorite thing, like ever? Oh, she's like, it's my favorite thing. Okay. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm Todd. I'm Ashley. Hi, Ashley. How are you? Very good. Good. I have some pudding for you. There's your pudding. And then uh, there's a spoon. And uh, there's a napkin. Does she need a napkin? Uh, No, she's pretty good. Yeah, okay, take one anyway. (laughs) Okay, now, I could tell Ashley about this pudding, couldn't I? And I could say, this bag doesn't balance. No, I could say, you know, in this pudding, Ashley... And you can tell by looking at it, there's chocolate. And chocolate is good. And there's sugar. Sugar's good. <laughs> Don't listen to what they tell you. It's good. It tastes good, yes? And now I'm in trouble. Is there butter in pudding? Is there cream? Okay, in my pudding, there's butter. <laughs> And there's cream. There are eggs? Egg white? Egg yolk? Hydrogenous oil. <laughs> not in this pudding there's not. 
you know, maybe in pagan pudding, but this pudding, no hydrogenous oil. But there's chocolate, Ashley, and it's really good. And there's like, there's vanilla swirl in there. You see that one? And it's really good, yeah. And this pudding is good. And she may believe me, even if she's never experienced pudding. But even if she has experienced pudding, she hasn't experienced this particular pudding, has she? Now, Ashley, how would you know for sure whether or not this pudding is good? You want to taste it? Yeah, me too. Go ahead, open your pudding. Here you go. You can lick the top of that if you want. You have some time. Don't cut your. T- oh, she started. Here, what? Good heavens. You know, wait a minute. We can't have you doing that. Here, here's some pudding for you, too. There you go. Okay. Here, there are three napkins for you. Okay. All right. All right. Because you got that top thing. All right. Yeah, Ashley's nervous you're going to get it on her. Okay. All right, Ashley. Oh, you, you look at you. You waited. You didn't even start eating the pudding. Okay. First service, I gave this pudding to this little girl, and she like, thank you. Boom! Ripped it open, and she was like, end of the pudding. All right, are you ready? Shall we taste it? Mm-hmm. Let's taste it. Let's have fun. Oh. That's good chocolate. Yeah, you all got a compass today. You're wishing we handed out pudding, aren't you? What do you think? You want some more? That's good. Yeah, it tastes like more? Yeah, let's have some more. Is the pudding good? Mm-hmm. How do you know for sure it's good? It Proof is in the pudding. Tastes good on her taste buds, she said. You know, there's a psalm. I think it's Psalm 39. You know what Psalm 39 says? It's, well, I didn't either until I looked it up. So, but Psalm 39, you know what it says? It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. How might we know for sure that what the Bible says is true? Or take our first two proclamations, that there is a God and that he desires to have a relationship with us. How might we know for sure? Look around, try it, taste it, right? You think God tastes like pudding? You think he tastes like pudding? Um, it's, it's a serious question. I think, I think that maybe that's an essential of the faith, that God tastes like pudding. You know? Think about it. Taste and see that the Lord, well, if you hated pudding, it wouldn't work. But Hey, give Ashley a hand. Thank you. The proof is in the pudding. And so too with Genesis 1-1. And so too with our two statements at least. In fact, all the essentials of the faith really. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a God. And he desires to reveal himself to us. When you go home from church today and you talk to people, you went to church, they say, what did you learn? You can tell them that you learned scriptures like pudding. The profound things that you learn in church. Can you believe it? And I don't know if it's an essential. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. What I like to remember with that illustration, I've used it before. Proof is in the pudding. Sometimes it's a good suggestion that when you get in a heated debate over what we've been calling, at least beginning last week, non-essentials with someone, maybe you both need to go have a time out and eat some pudding together. Amen? There is a God, and he desires to reveal himself to us. And God reveals himself to us in creation, something theologians call general revelation. 
And he also reveals himself to us through personal relationships with people, something that theologians call special revelation, the ultimate special revelation example that God uses to reveal himself to us is in Jesus, his incarnation. When God became a human being, I know, that's as intimate, as special a relationship between God and humanity as there could possibly be. And God's special revelation is also directly with people. Now, God's Revelation to people, both general and special revelation. God's revelation to people is God communicating to people the truth that they need to know in order to relate properly to God. Revelation is God communicating to people what they need to know in order to relate to him, in order to know him. Not just about him, but to know him. Here's where our primary focus this morning comes into play, and that's Scripture, the Bible. I want to camp with you for the rest of the time we have on this common ground, the common ground, the essentials of the faith when it comes to the Bible. Scripture literally means writings, and in relation to Revelation, that's exactly what Scripture is. God's revelation written down. God revealed himself in creation and in history and in personal relationships with people and in the incarnation of Jesus and what he did and how he lived and God reveals himself that way and scripture is a written record of much of that revelation. One analogy is that scripture acts as a preservative. It preserves in writing God's revelation. So it's putting with a preservative in it, maybe that hydrogenous oil. And oh, what a writing it is. Because it's not just any written record. It's not just any old book. Because Scripture is inspired by God. And that's our next essential of the faith this morning. Scripture is inspired by God. Scripture inspired literally means God breathed, right from God himself. Paul attested this truth in a book called Second Timothy where he says, all scripture is God breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that every man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Biblical inspiration can be defined this way. Inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the writers of Scripture. And that made their writings an accurate record of God's revelation. Or the influence which resulted in what they wrote actually being the Word of God. That's an essential of the Christian faith. Let's soak that one in a bit. Inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on writers which made their writings an accurate record of God's revelation or which resulted in what they wrote actually being the Word of God. Now, there are many 
what I'm calling non-essential discussions concerning the inspiration of Scripture. And please remember this morning and throughout this series something that I emphasized last week and I'll emphasize every single week in case someone here is new. When I say non-essential, I do not mean unimportant. Non-essentials are almost always important to discuss and debate and wrestle over, but choosing sides on such issues or dividing over them isn't necessary in my opinion. So they are not essential to the Christian faith. So there are many, however important, non-essential issues that flow from this topic of inspiration, but not, in my opinion, anything to die for. For example, questions like, how did God inspire the writers of the Bible? What did that Holy Spirit's supernatural influence look like? Did God just have particularly gifted people give people special innate giftedness through birth or through their developed talent and just let them run with it when they wrote? That's one theory. Did God partner with people in a more direct way in in writing the words? And if so, how? Uh, To what extent, if any, did Did God allow the distinctive personality of the writers to show through? Was the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit so influential that the Holy Spirit chose each and every exact word that God wanted written down? Did God dictate the words to the writers and they merely acted as scribes, writing down exactly what he said? And if he did it that way, when he said it, did God use an audible voice or just bring the words or thoughts to the writers' minds? And or did God inspire the text in many different ways? Does it matter what text we're talking about? See how quickly we can get into the weeds of non-essentials? however important, and hear me again, great questions, let's discuss them, but let's not divide over them. And if we get heated and feel that divisive pull over such questions as these, let's return, remember, come back to our common unifying ground, in this case, that God inspired Scripture in a way, whatever details of the way, in a way that they accurately, accurately convey the Word of God. So here's our unifying common ground so far. There is a God who desires to reveal himself to us. He wants to be known. He reveals himself to us so that we, so that we can know how to relate to him. Scripture is that revelation written down, and Scripture is inspired, that is, the Holy Spirit influenced the writers to make their account accurate and to make it the word of God. So if we get into the weeds discussing these issues further, as we should and must, just remember always, return here. Return to the essentials to find common ground. Allow our unity and diversity to strengthen around these essentials. And maybe have some pudding, I don't know. Okay, how we doing? Are you hanging in there? Okay, I know. Is it helpful? I mean, I'll try in a minute to answer the question, what difference does this all make for my life today? So maybe that will help too. Hooray? Hooray. All right, can we do one more? 
All right, I thought about taking a break here until next week, but I, I really need to talk about this next one in the same setting because a very close cousin to inspiration, in fact, her twin sister, is something called inerrancy or more generally infallibility. These two terms are often used interchangeably. Scripture is inerrant or infallible. Inerrancy or infallibility means that the Scripture is fully truthful in all it teaches. The Scripture is fully truthful in all it teaches. And we can see why this is a twin sister to inspiration, can't we? Because if the Scripture is God's Word, it must be true because God is truth and truth can't lie. God can't lie. And so Scripture, if it's God's Word, is fully truthful in all it teaches. Now, beyond that essential statement, we get into the weeds of non-essentials very, very quickly, in my opinion. For example, there is great debate as to what level of inerrancy There are three main camps of thought, more than three, but three main camps of thought, absolute, full, or limited inerrancy. Some Christians belong to the absolute camp. They believe inerrancy means that God and or the authors of Scripture intended to give us exact scientific historical data. For example, In 2 Chronicles 4, verse 2, we read that the bronze sea in Solomon's temple was a circle with a diameter of 10 cubits. And then we read in the same sentence that its circumference was 30 cubits. Well, we know that the circumference of a circle is the diameter times pi, 3.14159. So something's off here just a bit. An absolute inerrancy chap feels the need to explain that because both 10 and 30 must be absolutely scientifically, mathematically true. What they won't do if they're a true absolute absolute inerrant person, they won't allow and say, well, the writer or God just rounded it off. The absolute, it has to be precisely, absolutely, scientifically true. If we can't explain how yet, well, God hasn't revealed the information necessary to explain it. That's the absolute camp. Another inerrancy camp, some folks follow full inerrancy. They believe that the writers of Scripture reported things the way it appeared to the human eye. Still heavily influenced by the Holy Spirit here. But a full and errant person will allow the writer to do things like speak in round numbers. Finally, limited inerrancy draws a real sharp distinction between scientific matters and salvific doctrinal references. God allowed the writers to be subject to the limitations of their time. He wasn't their science teacher. He did not reveal to them every specific detail of science or history, and so There may be what we might call errors in those areas. But a limited, uh, inerrant person would quickly affirm this is of no great consequence since the Bible doesn't intend to teach science and history. It's after God's plan of salvation. For that purpose, it is fully truthful and inerrant. Well, who's correct? I would guess 
In fact, I think I know for certain that all three camps and maybe some others, all three camps of thought are represented here in the room this morning. I will waver between one, two, and three and others, depending on the text. I don't know which one, if there is one that's absolutely correct. And we can debate it, and we should, but we shouldn't divide over it. So long as we share the common ground that God's word is truth. It's truthful in all it teaches. You may have noticed on uh, West Bull's Essentials of the Faith pink sheet, you can also find it on our website where we list our essentials of the faith, that uh, we use the word infallible rather than inerrant. Many churches have followed suit in recent years. The, the reason behind this word choice, this shift it seems, is in today's scientific age, that word inerrant or inerrancy seems necessarily tied to that absolute camp on inerrancy or can give that impression. And because we don't hold that one particular camp of thought to be an absolute essential of the faith, we choose infallible to describe the essential. Infallible says that while not always necessarily accurate in all of its factual scientific historical references, infallibility allows for such accuracy but doesn't demand it If it did, it would be choosing that one absolute camp. Infallible says that while not always necessarily accurate in all of those scientific references, Scripture always accomplishes its divine purpose. I like to remember it this way. Scripture is infallible. It will never let you fall. The Bible's dependable. It's true. It will never let you down. It's completely trustworthy. God's word will not let you fall. It is infallible. So here's our unifying common ground so far. There is a God who desires to reveal himself to us. He wants to be known. He reveals himself to us so that we can know how to relate to him. Scripture is that revelation written down, and Scripture is inspired. That is, the Holy Spirit influenced the writers to make their account accurate and make it the word of God And as the word of God, the Bible is infallible. It is truthful in all it teaches. So when we get into the weeds discussing these issues further, remember, always return here to find common ground. Allow our unity and diversity to strengthen around these essentials. You can see on the screen I've added one more, which we don't have time to develop more this morning. Scripture is also authoritative, which means that as God's word, it has the right to direct us. After all, he created us. Three PSs this morning. First, do you ever wonder, especially when grappling with what I'm calling non-essentials, did you ever wonder in your Bible studies or in your reading of the Bible, did you ever wonder why the Bible isn't clearer on everything? Did you ever wonder that? I have. I look at it and I see good Christian brothers and sisters who I respect and love the text and I know I've indwelt with the Holy Spirit and community, all the rest, and they end up 180 degrees on some of these non-essential issues. And it's like, it could be written clearer. 
Now, if it's God's book, as I've suggested it is, if it's his words, and it's not clear, I'm going to suggest to you that it's as clear as he wants it to be. Do you ever wonder why it's not clear? I've got two suggestions. One reason I think he intends it the way exactly it is is, one, it invites us to wrestle with it, relate to it, know it, It's Jacob wrestling with God. An open Bible is an invitation to dive in. And we're intended to do that together in all our unified diversity, different experiences, different opinions, different giftedness from God, to dive in together and wrestle with it and build each other up as we wrestle with this amazing Word of God. Second reason why I think it's not clearer on everything, I think it, that characteristic of the Bible, that two or more Christians can disagree 180 degrees on, on essentials, I think God, maybe he intended that because it helps us to worship the one the Bible points to rather than to be tempted to worship the book itself helps us remember that this, as amazing as it is, is merely a tool, an amazing one, is merely a tool that points to a God who is love. And maybe if it was clearer on everything we could possibly imagine and didn't invite us to wrestle in, we'd be tempted to go, And forget that it's merely a pointer. What human language could possibly capture all that is and who is God? But it points to him. Now you can have your compasses. Take out your compasses. Okay, quick uh, psychological study. I'm not sure what the results mean, but it's interesting to me. How many of you already took the wrapper off your compasses? Okay, this is interesting, because it's like the early service, you know, it's like maybe 2%. In here, there's a much greater percentage. That's interesting. I'll think about that this week. So now let's, just so I can compare, how many left it in the wrapper? Okay, still predominantly left. I'm not sure what that says about you, or doesn't say about you. And if I did have some thoughts, I'd keep them to myself. But go ahead and open your compass. You know, it's not a perfect illustration, but I like it. I've always thought that, I've always thought that um, a compass would be a great thing to have um, as the cover of a Bible. Because you know, put a big old compass on there. Because that's what this thing does. It points us to God even as a compass points north. You know, no matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing, you can go to the Word, you can go to your compass, and you say, where is God? Oh, okay, it's north. God. It's what the Bible does. It's what these essentials can help us do, too. Now, when it comes to non-essentials in particular, see if the illustration works. When it comes to non-essentials, the essentials in the Bible and the Scripture point to God. My compass is pointing more or less that direction. Yours, too? That's north. Most of them I looked at 
you know, worked. I thought, okay, we're going to get compasses. We've got to make sure they work or it's going to ruin the whole thing. Because then God will be like, you know, that doesn't work. So that's God. Now when it comes to non-essentials, there are some brothers and sisters, when it comes to non-essentials, even though the essentials in the Bible point to God, when it comes even to what I've been calling non-essentials, their Christian walk and their life is something like this. We call those people Baptists. And I'm kidding. That's me sometimes, and there's a strength and weakness to it. I'll talk about that in a minute. Jill and I, uh, yesterday, we ran into a Russian pastor, and um, he couldn't speak English hardly at all, so his daughter um, uh, translated for us, his teenage daughter. It was really cool. So uh, he's a pastor, and he's telling me about his church, and he's asking me about ours. And he says, um, he says uh, you know, um, what kind of church is it? And my mind immediately goes, denomination. You know, I don't know. I says, well, we're a non-denominational church. So it goes back. He says something to her. Do you ever notice the translations, usually the foreign language, there's like 50 words. You know, on and on and on and on and on. And then like, the question they give you is like four words. You know, anyway, so it goes on. She comes back to me and she says, no, he wants to know if your church is Baptist or Christian. <laughs> I, said, I started giggling. I thought, well, this is pretty There are others, when it comes to non-essentials, essentials, Bible points toward God. There are others when it comes to non-essentials, Right? Uh, their life and witness and most of the time in general, you know, it's, it's, it's more something like this. Now, thank you, both of you. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a label we can give for fun is uh, our charismatic brothers and sisters. Or maybe uh, some who lean at least postmodern or emergent. I don't know. My fear is that, um, you know, I succeeded in offending just about everyone. <laughs> and part of me hopes I did, including me. Whatever labels you want to put on people, young, old, traditional, contemporary, 
Lots of labels to describe people. It's so easy to divide along them and to give people sort of an all or nothing review when it comes to what they believe or how they believe and how they live. It's real tempting to do that. On both ends of whatever spectrum you want to put names on it. And it grieves me to hear and to see the Christian church, brothers and sisters in Christ, who will be, I'm convinced, in heaven with one day forever. All of them loving the Lord and many of them giving their lives to the Lord and the fruit evident in their lives have such heated, divisive debates over some of these things. Instead of, I think, God's intention that we can learn from each other and humbly realize that on non-essentials, at least, we may be wrong. And to strive for unity, at least, on essentials, like the ones that I'm talking about today and on this series. We're all moving together toward God. As a unity and diversity community, the kind of community Jesus desires for us, we need to be patient with each other, humble with each other, open to learn from each other, cherishing the common ground of essentials we all hold and allowing for differences in all of us. How truth is perceived some deep discussions that many people want to have. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We know God's word is true. Let's talk about truth. Let's engage. Final P.S., and then I'll let you and your compasses go home to have some pudding. <laughs> I promise to return to the question, what difference does all this make for our lives today? Well, I think I've... Um, I've answered that in part along the way. Specifically, it ought to help our unity, these common ground on essentials. They can and should and must and will bring unity in the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want to add one thing more. My brothers and sisters, my God, our God, what an amazing book this is. I know it's only a tool, but what an amazing tool. What a guide. How many people did God use and work with to put this together over how many centuries? It truly is the greatest story, not just ever told, but the greatest story there's ever been. And it's still going on, and we're part of it. What if he never gave it to us? We'd always be in the weeds somewhere. There's great common ground to be found in this amazing book. It never lets you down. You can always depend on it. You can bet your life on it because it contains the words of life. Devour it, it says. Hagah it. Hagah is that Hebrew word for devour. In many English Bibles, it's translated meditate, which is the all-time worst English translation ever. 
of any Hebrew word that I know of, Haggah. And it will tell you the story of Jesus. It'll tell you the story of God. It'll tell you the story of life. It will help you find who you are and what you're doing here. And you'll learn here, not just in the words, but in the experience of the story, you'll learn here that there is a God and he wants to reveal himself to you and have a relationship with you because he loves you. We're getting to that later. And he loves you so much that um, he worked together with writers to write down his story so you could read it and have it and know it. And it's a story that's true. And it's one you can depend on because it comes right from God, partnering with people which he loves to do. Bible's like a compass. It points us to God, and it points us the way home to the God who is love. I can't, um, I can't hardly talk about Scripture and not end with one of my famous quotes. Okay, maybe it's my famous, my most favorite famous quote when it comes to Scripture. It comes from John Calvin. Maybe you've heard it. He says this about this pointer, Scripture. For as the aged, or those whose sight is defective, when any book, however fair, is set before them, though they perceive that there's something written, are scarcely able to make out two consecutive words. But when aided by spectacles, they begin to read distinctly. So Scripture, gathering together the impressions of deity which till then lay confused in our minds, dissipates the darkness and shows us the true God clearly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself to us and for your desperate love for us to know us and to hold us and to keep us close and to be with us through all of life's up and down. Thanks, Father, for your love which is so desperate it compels you. It compels you to the extraordinary, unthinkable measure of sacrificing your son so that you can be with us all people, forever. Father, help us. Help us to remain unified despite and even because of our diversity. Help us to be humble enough to hear each other out and to learn from each other with the help of the Holy Spirit that you've indwelt in us all and particularly in community. Help us, Father, bind us together as iron sharpens iron. Can our debate 
over however important non-essentials lead to unity rather than division. And Father, would you put clearly and indelibly on our hearts the compass of Scripture and the compass of essentials of the faith. May they become our common ground where we can, with love, despite differences on non-essentials, look at each other and say, huh, brother, sister, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' amazing name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction? You've heard the words already this morning. It's from 2 Timothy 3. Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy. And he says to him, and through Scripture to us, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great week.